Hello, you're very welcome to Long Read, the Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. If you think about the French revolutionary tradition, you're most likely to picture the storming of the Bastille and the overthrow of the monarchy. But that wasn't the first time there was a major uprising against the established order in France. In the second half of the 14th century, there was a popular revolt known as the Jacquerie, which terrified the French ruling class. They drowned the revolt in blood and set about demonising the peasants who took part in it. It was only in the wake of a successful revolution four centuries later that historians began taking a fresh look at the Jacquerie. Our guest today is Justine von Haber-Baker. She's a professor of history at the University of St. Andrews and the author of The Jacquerie of 1358, A French Peasant's Revolt. Published in 2021, her book was the first major study of the Jacquerie since the 19th century. What was the nature of the political system and the wider social order in France during the 14th century? So politically, we've got a centralised system in that you have a king and royal government, which actually by the mid 14th century, when the Jacquerie happens, has a very elaborate bureaucracy supporting a central royal government at all levels. But it's also decentralized in that local lordships and regional lordships are very important. So when we think about medieval lords, what we are talking about is people who have jurisdiction and fiscal rights over a particular territory and people. We used to think about the royal government and the lords as sort of very opposing forces. And there's a sort of zero-sum game that as royal power increased, lordly power, seigneurial power must have decreased. But increasingly, we understand that, that these two levels actually work together. Crown's not interested in getting rid of the lords, and lords see a lot of advantages in cooperating with royal government. And I should also say, just for clarification, that lords also include clerics. So your bishops, your monasteries and nunneries with properties where they exercise lordship in the same way as lay lords. Okay, so connected with that is the social order. And in the Middle Ages, a really popular way of thinking about the social order was that it was divided into three orders. So the first order was the clergy, those who prayed. The second order were the nobles, were those who fought. And the third order, really everybody else, were those who worked. And there's an idea that this is sort of a social contract, that those who work give over the fruit of their labor to those who pray in exchange for that intercession with God and to those who fight in exchange for protection. And so those first two orders, clerics and nobles, often also hold lordship as well as having that social status. So there's some complex ways in which society and politics are divided up. What impact did the Black Death have on French society in the middle and after of the 14th century? Yeah, it's hard to overstate that impact. So the Black Death reaches France in the winter of 1348. And 
estimates of mortality range from about 30% to about 60%. We're now pretty comfortable saying it's probably on the higher end of that, probably about 50%. So you can imagine losing half your population in such a short period of time. The first wave of plague takes about two years to run its course. Losing that amount of population in that amount of time is incredibly disturbing in the short term, and it actually interrupts the first phase of the Hundred Years' War, which has been going on since 1338. So for a couple of years after 1348, there's just a truce declared during the plague. But the longer term impacts are even more profound. So one of the important effects going forward is that it halves the tax base. So where the crown and lords are getting their money from are these workers, and there are many fewer of them around. So if you are going to still continue to pay for warfare, which is increasingly expensive in the mid 14th century, you are going to have to push your taxpayers even harder. And there's also a social impact because of the way that social and political elites hoarded resources. So a really simplistic way to think about the Black Death and the economy is, okay, the population was halved, but the resources stayed the same. So everybody's better off, yeah? But in actual practice, it doesn't work that way. Now, we do see some absolute improvement in everybody's quality of life, but in terms of relative inequality, it actually probably increases. So there should have been more resources available, but in practice, these weren't shared out equally because of the way taxation was enacted, because of the way labor laws were enacted, and also because of the way the land market worked in a way that really privileged noble ownership over ownership by commoners. How did the Anglo-French conflict that became known to historians as the Hundred Years' War affect the people of France? Yeah, that's a really good question, very much at the centre of the Jacquerie. And I like that you called it the Anglo-French conflict that became known as the Hundred Years' War, because that's really a term given to it in the 19th century. At the time, Okay, obviously people didn't know that it was going to last for 100 years. And also it's really part of an ongoing conflict between England and France that can be traced back to the 13th century, if not even before. But I do think that the past two decades, so from 1338, when we conventionally date the beginning of the Hundred Years' War to 1358, when the Jacquerie breaks out, this conflict had been much more intense than anything that French people were used to living before. And I think it's really important for an English-speaking audience to think about the fact that the Hundred Years' War is waged between England and France, but is mostly waged on French soil. So a major way that the Hundred Years' War 
affects the people of France is the increased incidence of violence that they experience. And indeed, part of that they experience as victims. Most warfare in the Middle Ages and indeed in the Hundred Years' War isn't waged as pitched battles between opposing armies. Mostly it's waged through raiding on the open countryside against non-combatants. So a lot of French commoners really suffered the effects of the Hundred Years' War as victims. But they also had new experience of violence, as, of military violence as perpetrators. And there was a sort of militarization of society as a whole during the Hundred Years' War because commoners are increasingly called to fight in the royal army and because infantry becomes increasingly important to medieval armies in the 14th century, meaning that you have many more commoners in the army than you had in previous centuries. And that has logistical effects. So commoners develop the capability to fight, they possess weapons and armor, they develop leadership skills. And that also has a psychological and social effect they realize the nobles are supposed to be the fighters, but we too, the workers are fighting. And indeed, maybe we are better than the nobles at fighting because at this point, the Hundred Years' War, now called the Hundred Years' War, has been going really badly for the French army where the king and the nobles are sort of in charge in command structures. So two years before the Jacquerie in 1356, there is a big battle called the Battle of Poitiers. And the French king is actually taken captive by the English. He is taken to London. A huge ransom is demanded. And the realm also falls into a period of major political conflict and chaos because he leaves his son, um, the Dauphin, who is 18 years old, a man named Charles, he leaves the Dauphin in charge. And by the time the Jacquerie breaks out two years later, the Dauphin has actually lost control of Paris and a lot of Northern France to a bourgeois rebellion that is led by the head of the Parisian merchants. And this bourgeois rebellion starts out sort of in partnership with the Dauphin. But soon they fall into conflict with him over their desire to reform the governing structures of the realm and with the Dauphin's noble supporters who object to the bourgeois rebellion's efforts to control the army and who also particularly object to their efforts to tax the nobles at at least the same rate as the commoners. And so by the winter of 1358, the bourgeois rebellion and the Dauphin have fallen into a really serious, violent conflict. The leader of the bourgeois rebellion has had two of the army's noble marshals murdered in front of the Dauphin in his bedroom. 
And this is sort of the moment when the split becomes irreconcilable. The Dauphin withdraws from Paris. He and his noble supporters start making plans to retake Paris by force. And one of the things they do is they garrison a couple of big castles on two of the three major rivers supplying Paris with food. And it's at that moment, with the Dauphin and his noble supporters sort of staring down Paris and Paris going, oh, not sure what we're going to do here. It's at that moment that the Jacquerie begins. So when did the Jacquerie itself begin? And was it a spontaneous event or had it been planned in advance? It's actually a little bit of both. But the first incident, which takes place on the 28th of May in 1358, was certainly not spontaneous. The sources all agree that what happens in that first incident is that the rebels first assembled from several different villages. And then what they do is they go to this town on the Waz River, which is the one river that the Dauphin has not blockaded, and they attack nine noblemen. And this target was very carefully chosen. So the noblemen were led by a knight by the name of Raoul de Clermontnel, who was related to one of those noble marshals that the bourgeois rebels had killed in front of the Dauphin several months earlier. And it's quite clear once you know what the geography looks like. And I, I went there and I walked it and I thought about, okay, so, so why here? Because at first that town looks really random. But actually what they were doing was they were trying to prevent Raoul de Clermontnel and the eight noblemen accompanying him and, and probably a number of troops beside to keep them from crossing the river there and going and garrisoning a castle just a little ways up the Waz River that would have allowed them to block the Waz in the same way that the Dauphin and his noble supporters were blocking the other two rivers. So that first incident looks really planned and it's clear that it is that it has connections with the bourgeois rebellion in Paris. Now, I don't think that that first incident was planned by Paris because it seems to have taken Paris by surprise. I think that the commoners and really the peasants are doing this off their own back because we know that people in the countryside had a very good idea of what was happening in Paris and many of them approved of it. And what they understood about what was happening in Paris is that in Paris, they kill noblemen, specifically these marshals who had been killed in front of the Dauphin. So that first incident looks really carefully targeted and very much a sort of military strategic attack. What grows out of that, and in some ways grows organically out of that, is linked but distinct. So 
The revolt that unfolded afterward really begins at a second assembly held in the aftermath of that first attack. And that is the point at which the peasants choose a leader. And it's really interesting that first attack seems essentially to be acephalous. They choose a captain. And it looks a bit like this captain, a man named Guillaume Cal, and maybe the men around him, and maybe some of the women as well, had a plan. But it's not clear that that plan was necessarily in the minds of everyone who later joined the Jacquerie. And one thing that's quite important to know about the Jacquerie and to remember about the Jacquerie is that the Jacquerie wasn't a single movement. It was a movement made up of thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people who had different ideas about what they were doing. They weren't all in contact with one another and their ideas about what they were doing, their objectives changed over the course of the six to eight weeks that the revolt unfolded. So as the revolt spread, and as you say, it became a convergence of many different revolts in, in a certain sense, how did the rebels organize themselves and what were some of the key demands that they put forward? Okay, so that captain that they elect immediately after the first incident, Guillaume Cal, and he's known as the general captain of the countryside, the captain of the area around the city of Beauvais called the Beauvaisis, which is really the Jacquerie heartland. Around him, Kale seems to have had some top lieutenants who ride with him, who give him advice, who are available to give messages to other areas involved in the Jacquerie. But underneath that top level, we have a layer of village captains. And there's some evidence that each village had its captain and that the captain also had a subordinate. So we're thinking about a captain and a lieutenant probably in each village. So there is a a sort of two-level hierarchy here. It's not actually a very strict hierarchy. There's a lot of evidence that People can just go talk to Cal and that people do not necessarily always do what Cal tells them to do. It is also a very grassroots movement because Guillaume Cal is chosen by this assembly. He's chosen from the bottom up, not imposed upon the movement. And these village captains were mostly chosen by their own villages. And that is both kind of a strength of the revolt, but it also leads to some tug of war over authority. So there's a sort of sense, well, I am the captain, we should pursue my objectives, but also sense from the rank and file, well, you know, we made you our captain so that you would do the things that we want to do. So there's some push and pull there. Now, for some revolts in medieval Europe, we know a lot about specific demands because the rebels sometimes even left behind list of demands. We don't have anything like that for the Jacquerie. 
we know that there were at one point that there was writing being passed back and forth, letters sent to cities that the Jacques wanted to be involved, and so on. But none of that survives, um, whether, th whether that's by accident or design, I don't know. So we are left to sort of discern their motives in a couple of different ways. So one of that ways is what chroniclers at the time say. And the chronicles say that when the Jacques articulated a motive in words, it was to destroy the nobles who were not defending the realm and the peasants as they ought to do, but rather taking all of their things. So it's a sort of criticism of that social contract of the three orders. The reason the peasant, peasants hand over their produce is because the nobles protect them, but here the nobles aren't protecting them and actually they're losing the Hundred Years' War very badly. So they don't deserve their noble status and the sort of luxury goods that come with this. And I should say here, the name of the revolt, the Jacquerie, actually comes from the name given to these common born soldiers, Jacques Bonhomme. And the nobles had sort of bestowed this on common born soldiers as a derisory nickname. But common born soldiers had actually kind of taken it up with pride. So the rebels, some of the rebels called themselves Jacques Bonhomme with a certain, a certain sense of, yes, we can be in charge of the kingdom now. We are better at warfare than the nobles. And there might also be an overlap between the kind of men who were in the army being called Jacques Bonhomme and the men who were in leadership positions in the revolt. Okay, so that's what the Chronicles say. And you want to just be a little bit, it makes a lot of sense, but it's worthwhile being a little bit critical because this is the motive ascribed to all peasant revolts in the Middle Ages. And I think it that that happens in a way because that makes it intelligible to elites in terms of this social theory of the three orders that they embrace. And why wouldn't they embrace it? It's very helpful to them. It, it provides an explanation for why they can take the fruit of the peasants' labor. And so it, it just sort of, to the extent that it allows criticism of the nobility to come through, it's not criticism of that unequal social order itself. It's just that the nobles aren't fulfilling their part of the bargain. They go back to fulfilling their part of the bargain, then fine. It's fine for them to extract surplus from the peasantry, essentially. The other way we can come at what the Jacques are looking for, why they are doing this, is to extrapolate motives from their actions. The chroniclers really focus on the Jacques killing nobles. But if we look at what they actually did, except for that very first incident where they kill nine nobles, they don't 
kill people all that often. Those nine nobles probably, on that single day, probably constitute a third of the identifiable nobles we know to have been killed during the revolt. Where the Jacques really focused their violence was on destroying noble fortresses and houses. And there's really two points there, really three. So one, we can see that as support for Paris, as a sort of diversionary tactic, moving the nobles away from the army that the Dauphin is gathering to attack Paris. He wants to gather that army to the south of Paris, and the Jacquerie really breaks out in the north of Paris. So it moves them back toward the north and delays that attack on Paris. There are also moments when the Jacques join with the Parisian militia who try to recapture one of those river fortresses that the Dauphin is occupying. But a lot of the Jacques violence seems much more social in its criticism, much more social than than military or political. And they are focused on those noble fortresses and houses because of the way they advertise the nobles' different social status and their excessive wealth. And one of the things it's important to know about some of the things nobles call castles in the mid-14th century is that their military capabilities are derisory. They're really just buildings for displaying wealth and status. So there's that social criticism of nobility as an economic and social status. I think it's important to note that when they are attacking nobles, it is an attack on nobles, not on lords. So the Jacquerie is not an anti-seigneurial revolt. They don't attack their own lords, which is really interesting. And we can tell that lordship per se, as opposed to nobility, is not the target because none of these clerical lordships are attacked. So bishops and monasteries own really extensive lordships, and yet they're not targets at all. Now, there is an interesting way in which the anti-noble animus of the Jacquerie overlaps with the pro-Parisian motivation because Paris's great enemy is the Dauphin and the Dauphin supporters are the nobles. So there is a way in which we can think about this revolt, not just as an anti-noble revolt, but as an anti-royal revolt, or at least an anti-Valois dynasty revolt, because of how closely intertwined the nobles are with the Dauphin and the royal state. Was there support for the revolt in the towns and cities of what was then urban France? Yes, absolutely. So I've talked a lot about Paris, but there are a number of other provincial cities in northern and eastern France and Normandy, like Lens, Meaux, Amiens, Beauvais, Rouen, Caen, and especially the city of Saint-Lys, which is about 50 miles from Paris. So city and countryside are different in this period. Cities are particularly 
distinguished because they have walls, which is something I will come back to in a moment, and because their political status is a bit different. So they are more involved in the politics of the realm. They are called upon to go to these assemblies of the three estates in a way that country dwellers are not. However, there is a lot of interpenetration of town and countryside. So town dwellers will own estates in the countryside and people in the countryside will come into the cities all the time for commerce, for work, for entertainment, um, and for administrative business. So when the revolt first breaks out on the 28th of May and extending at least until middle of June, at first the towns are pretty pro-Jacques. They open up their gates and they allow the Jacques in. They put out tables with wine and food to refresh them on their way. Citizens and even town militias join in the Jacquerie attacks on nearby castles and manors. And this is part of their pre-existing alliance with the bourgeois rebellion in Paris. So again, we see that sort of interpenetration of the Parisian rebellion, which is linked but distinct, and the Jacquerie. So at first the towns are, are really quite involved, but with the exception of Saint-Lys, all of these cities abandon the Jacquerie when it starts to go pear-shaped around the middle of June, which we'll talk about in a moment. And this is a real problem. It's a, it's a fatal problem for the Jacques because those city walls are the only defensive architecture available to the Jacques. They need to be able to retreat behind those walls. So the other defensive architecture would be the castles, but the Jacques had been destroying the castles, not occupying them. And anyway, there are very large groups, so very few castles would have been able to um, accommodate that many of them. So when the cities close their gates and say, actually, no, we don't want to be a part of this anymore, the Jacques are just sort of left on the open field to face noble armies and they get slaughtered. Could you tell us in a little more detail, perhaps, about how the military events of the Jacquerie unfolded and how was it eventually defeated? Sure. So from the outbreak on the 28th of May to the 10th of June, a failed date I will talk about in a second, the Jacques are pretty much masters of the countryside. They're attacking dozens, over a hundred castles. By the 5th of June, the Parisians, who again, I don't think were the originators of the revolt, but they were ready to join forces with the Jacques to see this as a really helpful thing for them. So on the 5th of June or thereabouts, the Parisian militia marches out to join the Jacquerie. By the 9th of June, 
we have Jacquerie forces across the countryside north of France, probably extending nearly into an area of the country called Picardy, almost up to Belgium. And then in the east of the countryside, you have a combined army of Jacques and Parisians who are heading to a castle at the city called Meaux that controls the Marne River flowing to Paris. And their intention is to attack that castle at Meaux and get that castle back into the hands of, of Paris and the commoners. On the 10th of June, that combined army attacks that castle at Meaux and they are destroyed. They are slaughtered like pigs in the streets of Mo because of the defensive architecture of that castle. And they were hoping that they could overwhelm it with numbers, but actually the way you get to that castle, it can be defended by a very small number of men. And, and that was what happened. Probably on exactly the same day, to the west, north of Paris, there is a big Jacquerie army led by Guillaume Cal, their supreme leader, that is facing off against a noble army that has gotten itself together to defend against the Jacquerie. And they have as their leader, a man named Charles, who is king of the Spanish country of Navarre. Now he also has some claims to the French throne and he, he is a major Norman Lord, which is why he is there. So the king of Navarre is in charge of this noble army, which also includes lots of Englishmen, interestingly. And that army also completely overwhelms the Jacques in a very dishonorable way, in fact, because what the King of Navarre does is he sends a messenger to Guillaume Cal and says, I would like to parley. Right. So this is completely normal on the eve of battle. You send to your opposite number for parley. But what happens when Guillaume Cal goes to the King of Navarre is that he is seized and beheaded. And then the nobles attack the now leaderless Jacquerie army. We think that also some of Cal's um, subordinate captains had gone with him. And again, they destroy them. So the 10th of June is, you'll often see it given as the date for the end of the Jacquerie. It's not, it's not at all. The Jacquerie continues on for six weeks after that, well into July and in places even after that. But from the 10th of June, we see the beginning of a counterinsurgency, which we call the counter Jacquerie. So a lot of the nobles had actually been hiding out, but they get their courage back. And now they come out of hiding and they start to take vengeance. So in the east of the country, the Dauphin is actually leading a campaign of nobles who are taking vengeance just sort of at will. In the west, it's the King of Navarre. And originally the Jacques had actually thought the King of Navarre might help them because he was allied with the Parisians and against the Jacques, but that turns out not to be the case. But the Jacques fight back. So it's not just the story of the tables being turned. It's just that what happens after the 10th of June is what had been a social revolt of non-nobles against nobles really becomes a social war between nobles and non-nobles. 
where we can probably say, okay, Jacquerie is definitely, definitely spent is at the end of July when there is a counter coup in Paris on the 31st of July and the leader of the bourgeois rebellion is killed. The Dauphin re-enters Paris. He spectacularly executes the remaining prominent bourgeois rebels, but then he draws a line under the whole thing and starts issuing pardons for anybody involved in the bourgeois rebellion in the Jacquerie revolt or in the noble effort to suppress it afterwards. So it's really that moment that I would say is the end of the Jacquerie. You still get some sort of scattered echoes in different parts of the kingdom, but those are not really linked to the original movement, but just imitations and also conflicts that, that later get labeled Jacquerie because of when they took place rather than actually being part of the revolt. Did the revolt leave behind any tangible legacy for France after its defeat? Mm. For a few decades, yes. So we can trace the legacy of the revolt through lawsuits, mainly, between people who were damaged in the revolt or indeed in the noble suppression of the revolt and people they thought were responsible for the damage. And a wonderful thing about legal documents, and particularly medieval legal documents, is they often tell you these great stories about everything that that led up to the lawsuit and all the bad blood that has affected the course of the lawsuit. And it's, it's clear that a lot of people didn't accept drawing a line under these events. They were still angry. There were still non-nobles being killed decades after the revolt for association with it. Lawsuits that went on for 30 years. And there were also physical reminders of the revolt. We know from later inventories of nobles holdings that even by the turn of the 15th century, so 1400, there are still buildings that are listed as ruined because of the time of the commotions, which is what they call a Jacquerie. And Jacquerie for a while becomes a word that is sort of an insult. So it it is a, a coinage of the mid 14th century. The revolt is called the Jacquerie at the time, but a few decades later, it's the kind of thing where someone gets into a fight in a tavern and says, well, you're just a a waste of space. Go and get yourself off to your Jacquerie. By the end of the 14th century, that memory has faded. And it's really interesting that in Northern France, you don't see another big peasant rebellion for a really long time. Now the cities, particularly Paris, rise again and again. And most urban rebellions in medieval Europe will have some kind of rural counterpart, but we don't see that in Northern France. And I wonder if that isn't 
actually in its own way a legacy of that revolt a legacy of oh last time the countryside was involved and and actually we kind of lost control of that we in the cities lost control of that so we're going to avoid that but really except for its inclusion in one of the most popular chronicles of the Middle Ages, there's not a lot of memory of the revolt until the end of the 18th century. How has the Jacquerie been remembered and interpreted by historians over the course of subsequent centuries? Mm -hmm. So like I said, it was forgotten for a long time. We see the word Jacquerie first reappear in English as well as in French at the end of the 18th century, around the time of the French Revolution. And this is when historians start to get interested in common people in a way they never had before, right? So it's very much a reflection of their own time period and what's going on in their own time period. And they start looking for you know, the seeds of 1789, in these much earlier medieval rebellions. But the first book on the Jacquerie, and and indeed until my own book, the only book on the Jacquerie, appears in 1859. And that is partly a legacy of social and political movements of the 19th century. It also has to do with the professionalization of history and the discovery of new sources, particularly legal sources, that allowed this author, a man by the name of Simeon Vus, to write a, a much broader history of the Jacquerie based on those legal documents, as well as the very stereotyped accounts that we get from the Chronicles. So that first 1859 book argued that the Jacquerie was organized, political, linked to the Parisian revolt, But very quickly, there is a reaction to that, arguing that, no, that that actually couldn't possibly be the case because, and, and this is literally what the first historian to react in this way says, that these peasants are rude, uneducated, drunken louts. They are incapable of planning, let alone organized political action coordinated with a great city like Paris. It's a spontaneous eruption of peasant hatred. It's completely irrational. There is no planning. It just explodes. Really, these two schools have kind of continued to, everybody who writes on the Jacquerie continued to kind of take one side or the other. Um, a fairly recent book on the Hundred Years' War says the Jacquerie was just about peasants brutalized by war in their fog. They could no longer distinguish friend from foe. The only enemy was a nobleman. My book definitely comes down much more on the organized political link to the Parisian revolt side of things. But one of the things I really wanted to emphasize in my book is this is a heterogeneous movement. So 
I don't think any of the people involved in the Jacquerie were stupid, incapable of planning. There's also no evidence, just for the record, that they were drunk. But not all of the revolt was about these very specific military and political aims of Paris. A lot of it was much more organic and much more critical of nobility from an economic and social and and even an aesthetic standpoint than it was about the conflict between the noble party and the bourgeois party in Paris. Many thanks to Justine von Haber-Baker for giving us that introduction to the events of the Jacquerie. You can also read her article about it on the Jacobin website.